Humans are story-shaped creatures, but how does this relate to the narrative of the Bible and the story that God is writing through history? Hello and welcome to the God's Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. And a very special guest on the show uh, with us this time is Jennifer Holberg, who's just published a new book with IVP, InterVarsity Press America, called Nourishing Narratives, The Power of Story to Shape Our Faith. Jennifer is Professor and Chair of the English Department at Calvin University in Michigan in the States and co-director of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, the home of the Festival of Faith and Writing. And Jennifer joins me now from the States. Jennifer, hi. Hi, how are you? I'm I'm so excited. Speaking to you, you know, New Zealand is one of my dream countries to visit. So, well, we've uh, just been told yet again. Yes, we've just been told yet again yesterday in our media that New Zealand has been voted as one of the most beautiful countries in the world, and so we, I don't disagree. So, (laughs) you're more than welcome. Yeah, well, one of these days, it's it's really very high on the list. Oh, yes. No, you must come. It's, it really is beautiful. My apologies, by the way, are from my co-host, Ian Reed Rido, who's who's sick today. So he's just sent me a text saying, I'd love to have come, but I'm sick. And so there we are. Yeah, <laughs> blessings to him. Now, Jennifer, um, this book is fabulous. I mean, it's so full of story and personal life history and observation and literature, lots and lots of literature, wonderful literature. I hope we can come on and talk about that. But I wonder where your love of writing and of books came from. Well, yeah. So thank you again for having me. Really appreciate our common work. And uh, But I think it started in a couple of ways. I talk about in the opening of the of the chapter about uh, a teacher that was particularly important to me who we had a thing in our classroom. We had an old clawfoot bathtub that she had covered with this fabulous 70s fur and had pillows in it. And you were able to sit in the reading tub. And that was just such a treat. And uh, But in my own family, uh, we had reading every single night. We read, we usually read something from a storybook, or, but then we read something from the Bible or a Bible storybook, depending on our age. Uh, so I, I came from a pretty bookish family. My brother is a librarian. <laughs> My sister is a preschool teacher, so uh, our house is full of books. And um, I talk a little bit in the book, too, about my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who was an advert, uh, just had so many books in her house and constantly wanted to uh, had one with her at all times. My other grandmother, who is not in the book, was also a country school teacher. And so I grew up in this this family that was very bookish. We read a lot. But your question was really about writing. And I would say, you know, that was always important, too. Again, in elementary school, I was... Um, able to, they started a creative writing magazine when I was in fourth grade. So that's about nine, eight or nine. And um, I got to be one of the editors. And uh, our teacher, Mr. Ross, was very big on us being professional. We peer reviewed things. And <laughs> if we wanted to reject it, he would he would always call me Miss Holberg. And he'd say, well, Miss Holberg, you need to tell them what it is that they and we did. We we actually did reject a few little poems, but I had a lot of opportunities to write a lot of. And because I was often done with my work early, uh, my my parents very much socialized me to both read, but also to write stories and things like that. So I always wrote a lot as a little kid and uh, and then wrote a lot. Some of this really grows out of some blogging that I did. And um, I just think it's 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 a fun it's a fun way to uh, to work through your ideas. <laughs> Sounds like a wonderful upbringing and childhood. Yeah. Um, 
my, my inspiration was, again, stories of the Bible, but Miss Green, I particularly remember Miss Green, who was, I think, the headmistress of the school at the time, who was absolutely fabulous at reading the stories of Winnie the Pooh. And she would do all the voices for all the characters. And I was absolutely mesmerized. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I don't remember really a time. I mean, once I learned how to read, I read so much and read voraciously and um, wrote a lot and uh, just just loved the world of books. And like you, the, the world of the Bible was important too. A lot of Bible stories, um, lots of things at Sunday school or clubs or, you know, where that was very important in my family was to get to get the words, not the, the, the words too, you know, the vocabulary, the cadences. And so, yeah, very much a, a, a book-based family. In fact, I just helped my father clean out our family home for him to sell because he's now um, moving to a retirement community and, oh, the books. <laughs> uh, and, he can't uh, and he can't take them with him. No, but I brought them to my house, which was a, <laughs> perhaps not. And I felt pretty good. I only brought, you know, 15 or 16 boxes, and the moving company was still very uh, uh, irritated with me. <laughs> oh, well. Spare a thought for, for an ex-colleague of mine in, in broadcasting who had a huge record collection of thousands of, of old mm. shellac records, 78 records, and those things weigh a ton. And his moving company had to move 10,078 records. Oh <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anyway, we better get on with this interview. Uh, <laughs> now, in what ways do you suggest in the book that we're all story-shaped people? What makes, us, um, what makes story so uh, invigorating for us, do you think? Yeah. Well, I think it's really interesting these days that we're bombarded by so many stories constantly. And I think some of those come from culture, from our church cultures, from whatever our nationality is. I think there are internal stories that, for better or for worse, we, we take on and they sometimes constrain us, trap us, and they sometimes help us live into who we should be. But I think it's it, interesting now that, you, you know, back, we look like we're about the same age. You know, there was a book in the 80s called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, right? Yes. That the approach to Christianity was this kind of fact base. And if we just go through enough facts, people will be convinced. Now, we can talk about whether that's a good idea or not. But I do think that the mode now is really story and that so much in our in our world changes, whatever level that is at the, the individual level, all the way up to global levels, that if we that, that we need to be thinking about the fact that we make decisions a lot more on stories than we do on facts. And I think for better or for worse, so we could talk about, I think, the, the worst part of it. But I think the book is really trying sort of implicitly through going through stories to help us be better interpreters. Um, so how do you look at a story that's being presented to you in whatever context and try to think to yourself, is this something that's going to nourish me, as the title of the book says, or is this something that's a little bit maybe more toxic or at least at odds with what I proclaim my faith is? And so how do, how do those things go together? And so I think it's really important that, as I say, we're story-shaped people, that really it's formational, it's formative, and the kind of story you begin to believe about whatever it is, your history, your nascent history, you begin to be formed or deformed into, into what that story, that mold of the story is trying to, 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 uh, to push you into or to, to suggest to you. You know, one of the things I often say to my students is narrative normalizes. So we think about something like smoking um, and we talk about how in old movies, 
if if the if the male lead pulls out a cigarette well he's alluring he's that sexy right but now and i often start with on the other end and i say if you see someone smoking a movie what is their character and they would say oh they're the villain so nothing has changed in terms of the facts about smoking the laws about smoking but the stories we tell about smoking over the last 70 years or so have changed such that, you know, when I first came to Calvin, we had smoking pits and things like that because smoking was still, you know, done by our students. Now you hardly find a single one. Um, and I, I think that's just a very small example of ways in which we change our minds because of a story we know or see uh, or something that gets normalized. And then uh, and then it's hard to fight against that. And I, I think that's that's interesting in terms of faith, right? Because if someone shares a story with you, you it, that just sort of says, oh, well, now it's true. Well, is it? <laughs> uh, maybe. But how do we develop better kind of hermeneutical, better interpretive modes to assess our own stories and the stories that are that are really trying to shape us at all times? That's yeah, a long answer. No, no, that. no. I'm, I'm with you on the on the black and white movies, particularly film noir. I mean, there's so much. I think I, I suspect a lot of it was the fact the directors and the photographers absolutely loved the swirling smoke and and in the light and black and white and the effect it had. Well, <laughs> it's probably I think part of it. That's cool, right? There's a sort of aesthetic always to cool, and it changes. But it, as you think about it, I mean, what looks cool? What's the story? What's the mm. what's the narrative that you want to fit into that you've seen that says, "Oh, that's cool," and I want to aspire to that. And I think that's right. So when it looks so alluring, why not? Mm -hmm. Very good point. Yes. I wonder how many cigarettes Humphrey Bogart got through in the 40s in the movies for Warner Brothers and others. But anyway, let, that's a digression. Yeah. What are the nourishing narratives then, Jennifer? You mentioned we should focus on nourishing narratives. And I want to ask you in a minute how God's story interacts with our smaller stories. But let's yeah. deal with the nourishing narratives first. What are some of the nourishing narratives that we can embrace? So some of the things I think we need to think about and some of the things I talk about in the book, the second chapter of the book is called Enough. Because what I, I've really been struck in recent years in working with my students, but also just friends and, you know, the, the place I live, how often people think that they're not enough, how they um, really act out of what, you know, Walter Brueggemann a long time ago talked about the scarcity mindset. I'd rather go back to Egypt where I at least control, seem to have control, than be out in the wilderness where I don't have control. But also that every day I think people get lots of things pointed to them that says, you're not enough because you're too much. You're not enough. You're and that that's sort of two sides of the same coin. Right. But but I think, you know, if you were just thinner, if you were just smarter, if you just live somewhere different, if you just blah, 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 if you had this parent or this, you know, this educational. But every day it's about your inadequacies. And I really think that flies in the face of a God of plenitude and a God of generosity and a God who says you're beloved. But that's a really hard story to, to, to talk about with people. They Once they've internalized their not-enoughness, it's really hard to hear God loves you. God died for you. you know, Flannery O'Connor says that the scandal of the gospel is that no matter how bad we were, God decided to die for us. Well, sure. And I'm a Calvinist, right? So I believe in, in, in the, how bad we are, but I also believe in how good we are in that God is that our beloved character says to you, you're enough. And so that that's a sort of nourishing narrative that I think is a counter to, to something that constantly every day that people struggle with 
in whatever form, right? So it, it takes a lot of different forms, but whatever your anxiety is, it's typically at its root. There's something that I'm not enough um, or that I'm disappointed. I'm, I'm vaguely disappointing at all times, right? <laughs> and, and so then to read someone like Julian of Norwich or Hopkins or somebody, and not that Hopkins didn't struggle with that himself. And I know, we'll talk about Hopkins later, I know. But, but to say, you know, you are immortal diamond already, right? Despite all the junk you are, and Hopkins lays out all the, all the things, right? I'm a jack, I'm a joke, I'm a potsert, I'm, I'm all the junk, I'm all the jumble. I'm also currently also an immortal diamond, and eventually I'm only going to be a mortal diamond, but I am already, and, and I am beloved of God, right? And, and, and I think when I've taught Julian in the past where she, you know, really affirms the further the, the text goes on about how important the love of God is, I will have students say, I don't know, that, that just seems, really? Really, how could God love me? And God loves other people maybe, and sort of abstractly maybe, but not in the particularity. And I talk in the book about plenitude and particularity, right? That it's not just this vague kind of abundance, but that God's God's great this this great sort of overwhelmingness of God is is working at work in you too though in that kind of particularity and to to notice that I think starts to make you a much a different kind of person yes um, because yes. It's, yeah yeah uh, can we come and talk about uh, abundance or plenitude and sure. Gerard Manley Hopkins um, because you write are you right I think you introduce Hopkins when you're talking about abundance and plenitude because of how he deals with it in his poetry but why is Gerard Manley Hopkins in the running for the best Christian poet ever in your view <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm, you know, as someone who lives in an English department with people who teach Milton and others, you know, it's partly me being a little cheeky, but he is the most, he's really important for me. Um, but I would also say he's such an interesting poet because uh, he struggles. I mean, we have his famous series of poems where he just hits the bottom. He helps people really understand or articulate it if it is your own condition you know, what sort of real, you know, he has that wonderful poem in one of the terrible sonnets where he talks about the mind, the mind has mountains, hold them cheap may, right? So, you know, you don't understand what it's like to feel like you're sort of clinging on. Um, so I think he does the full gamut of, of emotions, but he's also just, I think, incredibly masterful with his language, the way he plays with it, the way it can have all kinds of meanings and punning. But I also think that he really himself, having had his convert, like long conversion, his struggles, he just seems a particularly, I mean, I, I think it shouldn't surprise us that he comes out in 1918, right? He's not actually published in the Victorian period. He very much has this kind of modernist sensibility. And he feels to me in some ways very contemporary. He's struggling with a lot of things about who he is even as he wants to find ways to praise God, but and, also and, find ways to name the really, I mean, some of the terrible sonnets he doesn't resolve. He doesn't have a sort of Jesus-y triumphant, tri triumphalistic ending. It just says, yeah, right now this is terrible. And I hope I get some sleep. I mean, there's literally a poem like that. Yes. And then there are others that are these wonderful things. And so I, I love that he, he gives us a model of how as Christians, there's a full expression of literature open to us, and he just does it so beautifully, at least for me. <laughs> and, and brokenness. He deals with broken, yes, our brokenness exactly. so beautifully. How can he help us understand our brokenness, do you think? 
Well, I think, first of all, he helps name it. Right. Um, and I think there's some really interesting poems where he even when you think about um, one of his most famous poems, God's grandeur, right? The world is charged with the grandeur of God. And it starts with this sort of I always think of it as sort of timpanies, boom, 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 you know, oh, but then he has this turn and he says, but humans are awful. And we trudge, we trudge, we trudge, and we're smearing and, blah, 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 and it just seems so it goes from this beautiful height to this like, ugh sin oh gross and then he has this interesting turn though and he says and for all this and just that little and i think is really fascinating because when i when we when we do it in class we talk about how probably normally in english we might be tempted to say but for all this and yet hopkins with that and holds those things both in tension in the best kind of way that i think christianity right now you know in in before we die, right? Where we have to hold that tension, the grandeur of God, the the failures of human beings, and for all this, and for all of this, good, bad, indifferent, God is always with us. The Holy Spirit is brooding over the earth. And at the end, he pulls us back up to the front of the poem and says, you know, and the Holy Spirit's there with ah, in other words, which I love the little Hop Hopkinsian pun, right? A-W-E -A and A-H. Uh, and awe, like, oh, when I when I realize that God is brooding over the world, despite everything that's going that's going badly, ah, there it is. Oh my goodness. And once again, the excitement and the and the the restoration of 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 the goodness of God still continuing despite our best efforts. Right. So, yes, yes. Um, you write it's important to have a robust engagement with fiction. That's one of the themes in your book, too. And um, I'm going to tie that question in with uh, George Eliot. Mm -hmm. uh, why is it important to have a robust engagement with fiction? And what can we learn from George Eliot's Middlemarch, which I believe yes. is your favorite novel? My favorite novel. novel. That's very true. Uh, I love Middlemarch. And I think it's. Uh, what you know, Virginia Woolf, as the listeners probably know, said it was you know one of the first books for grown-up people, which I think is fascinating—a fascinating way to think about that book. Because Middlemarch, if people have not read it, um, so much of the 19th-century novel is the marriage plot. So it's it's the it's the heading towards. So the entire novel is you know they meet and many many difficulties and then they marry. Uh, and, you know, there's different varieties of that and people do different things with it. But but that's a lot of what happens in Elliot. It's it, in Middlemarch. She gets them married off within the first couple of books. And then what she says is for most of them, there's a there's a one a couple of significant couples that marry at the very end. But um, but but then she sort of shows. Well, first of all, how they get married and what the stories were that got them into the marriages and how those stories were sort of not true. <laughs> and so even though they married who they wanted to marry, they are very surprised at the marriages that result. And you see a lot of, I mean, my students always say this novel is so depressing, but it's the stories you tell, you tell yourself in order. Um, and so in some ways they're in love with their story more than they're in love with the person that they marry. And so you see the struggles that they have in their marriages because their stories are really bypassing each other. And what they were hoping from from one another is not what they're getting. Um, but in, in some of the marriages, they can work through it. And in some of them, they can't. And you sort of see how they get trapped in these narratives of, you know, one of the characters 
wants to marry the out of towner because he's going to have, you know, he's more exciting and, and she wants a certain kind of life with him, but they never really communicate. And so, and he has a vision of himself as uh, this reformer and he's going to do all this amazing stuff and he doesn't really want to get married, but then he does. And they're just not on the same, they're not on the same path. And so I think all of the unhappinesses in that book are sort of trying to talk to you about how are you a, a better interpreter? Um, how do you sort of make sure that you are communicating with one another about the stories that are happening in your own brain? Um, and that the successful couples in the book are those that can sort of get on the same page. Or like in one famous, there's a sort of mid-level character, but but at the moment where he is the most, you know, he's done wrong and there's a scandal in the town, his wife really has every right to leave him. And in fact, in the book, she kind of goes around and, and all of her female middle-aged friends are like, leave him, you have every right to leave him. And she has this moment of forgiveness with him, which I think is, again, very interesting because it, it's not the story you expected. And yet it's a it's a really powerful story of of how you might want to behave in a relationship. So I think that Middle March is a challenging book because it asks us to really think about the stories. And it's a fun it's a fun novel to teach to young adults who are thinking about entering into relationships mm -hmm. because they then have to interrogate what stories they're taking into their relationships and how they're envisioning themselves. In, in that relationship and what their expectations are for their partner and, and all of those kinds of things. So, yeah, yes. I think it's a fantastic novel. So, yep. In the time we've got left, which I think is about seven minutes. Um, okay. Sorry. That's fine. No, 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 no. We've covered a lot of ground. That's that's fine. Uh, Dante, we mentioned Dante before we yes. started. Now, what does Dante's Divine Comedy teach us about the church, I wonder, with all its imperfections, all our imperfections? Mm-hmm. I'd say a couple of things really briefly. First of all, I think that one thing that should strike you if you read the Divine Comedy, um, a lot of people think about, oh, he has popes in hell and things like that. Oh, okay, sure. Uh, and I think if you understand that Dante is very Franciscan, that that helps you, that, that Dante really sees himself as a reformer in the spirit of Francis. But I would say more importantly than that, even if you don't know any of that, is that Dante keeps asking a question all the way through the Divine Comedy, which is, huh, what are you doing here? And he asks it to people in hell. He asks it to people in purgatory. He asks, like, at, at every stage, he's surprised that people are where they are. Now, towards the end, he starts kind of figuring out that maybe he shouldn't be so surprised um, and that it's really not up to him. But I think that that's really useful in, in a culture whenever we want to sort of say as a church, like, you're in and you're out. Not our job. And there's a wonderful moment in the Purgatorio where Dante comes across a man who was excommunicated twice, buried in unhallowed ground, oh, the whole bit. And he says, what are you doing here? And the guy says, you know, it's not up to the church. It's not up to the church to excommunicate me or not. As long as there's this, this slightest hint of green and God is still coming after me, uh, it can happen. And it did. And isn't that wonderful? And now I need to repent or whatever. But but I think that, that that's always a powerful moment that as important as I think church is as a as a way for us to come together corporately, I also think we need to remember that uh, Dante is very clear, like not up to you. And I also think it's important that he always goes with guides. So this is I, perhaps a particularly American problem, but, you know, there's this kind of Lone Ranger idea that I'm going to do it myself and me and Jesus and yay. And I, and I do think this is sort of the counterpart of the church doesn't get to make all the decisions. 
I think it is important that we always go with guides and that we're there to not only that God sends them to us, because I think that's important, even in the depths of hell, God, God is, is, is coming to get us. Right. Um, but, but more than that, that we are traveling along with people and their testimonies. And this is comes back to story again. It's why it's so important for us to hear other people's stories because we we grow so much more when I hear your story as well and I add it to mine and maybe even adjust mine and I say, huh, yeah, okay, that's great. So that that idea I talk about in the book, one generation will testify to another. You know, when I was younger, I always thought of that as as sort of older people, you know, telling their story to younger people. And I really come to believe that it's really more the generation speaking to each other. And that as we learn each other's stories within the context of church, which is really one of the few multi-generational places left anymore, that we really do kind of grow in our faith because um, we can we can sharpen each other with with our with our stories. Final question, Jennifer. How does God's we've probably already answered it, I think, but how does God's story interact with our smaller stories? Yeah, and I think that that's a really that's a great question because um even though we've kind of already touched on it, I do think one of the things that that I that I really strive for in the book, and maybe the overall point of the entire book is that again, you know, the subtitle says the power of story to shape our faith, and shape is is a is a positive and a negative word. So, are we putting our story up against the story that the Bible tells us? So, we may have a story about ourselves that we're perfectly fine with, but it doesn't actually accord with what the Bible says about us. Right. And and that might be our enoughness. It might be uh, things like calling. I talk about that in the book. You know, so we may have been raised where we think, oh, we need to only this is appropriate. It, but is that really the story that the Bible teaches us? So I think that the important thing is, is to that we're always kind of putting our own story uh, or God's story as an overlay on ours to say, are they lining up? And if they aren't lining up, where are the places that I've maybe taken on a cultural Christianity? Maybe I've taken on just a thing that I want, <laughs> um, but really isn't, right? So I think it's the the great test that there's a sort of true, and we got to see, you know, how how much we're how much we are um, keeping in line with that, because the Bible has a lot of challenging things, you know, whether that's about. I mean, I talk in the book about how I'm a single person, right? There's lots of stories we tell about romance and singleness and marriedness, and that's continually. But what does the Bible say? What's the story that the Bible is telling us? And how do we put that up against the kind of other stories that are competing for our attention? Yes, fascinating. Jennifer Holberg, Professor and Chair of the English Department at Calvin University in Michigan in the States. Jennifer, the half hour has sped by, really. It sure has. I mean, it sure um, has. there it you go. It's such a delight and, to talk to you. Oh, and a delight to talk to you too. And um, I'd love to have you back on the show to do more Gerard Manley Hopkins at some point. Would love you, to. We could uh, do I'll, a whole. We could do a whole half hour on him. Oh, easily. Yes, I know. I'd, I'd have the oh, opportunity yeah. to and the excuse to reread my Jared Manley Hopkins, which I would absolutely love doing. So let's do that, please. That'd be wonderful. Okay. The book from Jennifer's book from IVP America is called Nourishing Narratives: The Power of Story to Shape Our Faith. One of the th people we didn't get to talk about, Jennifer, is our own Peter Jackson, because yes, you right. mentioned the movie They Shall Not Grow Old, which I have seen yes. parts of, and I totally agree with you. He really it's does. It's restore history and make it make us see it in a different way. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That, 
that movie is incredible. I cannot praise it enough. I show it to my own students and his uh, little document, not little, but his his like 30 minute documentary that goes along with all of his choices. I just think it's fascinating to see. I think he's such a careful filmmaker anyway, but in that film, just the way he thinks about history and the way he wants to help us again, rethink the story, even in something as simple as a frame, right? So the fact that old film went at all kinds of different rates and it therefore made us have an interpretive mode that sort of dismissed those people as sort of not fully human. They're sort of these jerky weird, and that just changing that made us think about them and that history in such a different way. So yes, I, I, yes, I, I love him. If he would ever like to come to the Festival of Faith and Writing, we would love to have him. So <laughs> why, why don't you send him an invitation or send him right. an email? You never yeah. know, you know, worth yeah, an ask. He's an interesting, yeah. I've never met him. I don't know him, but he's an interesting character. And as you say, fabulous filmmaker. Well, and I think someone, something like his Hobbit series and his Lord of the Rings series, again, thinking about these, these great narratives that are helping us. I mean, I would definitely say that's, that's a, those are texts that help us have more to be Christian with. How do we think about good and evil? I mean, you think about Sam, when they throw the ring in, right? They can't, he can't carry the ring you know he wants to help him he wants to help him but he can carry him and i i just think there's a lot of profound things that those films capture out of tolkien's work so absolutely anyway, so wonderful yes, to talk to you and and the, and as i keep telling or explaining to people overseas that when i was over in england that the director's cuts were much much longer than the commercially released movies like i mean i think was it the last one was cut by about an hour and a half Mm -hmm. for commercial release so you need to go and get the dvds or the blu-rays or whatever or, or the downloads I own them, so. yeah yeah <laughs> of the director's cuts because please if you haven't seen the full director's cuts you, you're missing so much he had to cut so mm -hmm. much out for the for the commercial cinema you know mm -hmm. jennifer thank mm -hmm. you so much and thanks to our creative team at liquid edge who sponsor this podcast and to take care of things behind the scenes jennifer thank you for being a fabulous guest Thank you, and God's blessings today. Bye-bye. And to you. Bye-bye. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.